0: Yes, it's Jan Bartlett, back with Tuesday Home Time for 2022, and thanks to all those who filled in over the break. And now it's full steam ahead. We'll begin with Emeritus Professor Stuart Rees, looking at events over that period. And could Rio Tinto finally be brought to account over the disastrous Panguna mine on Bougainville? I'll be speaking with 30-year activist Vicky Johns. Dr. Tim Anderson spent three months in the Middle East. We'll find out why and what he observed. The very successful BDS against Israeli fund into the Sydney Festival with the co-founder of Australia BDS, Peter Slasek. And part one of the recent history of Honduras with Sasha Gilius-Lukakis, broadcaster, activist and PhD candidate. And then... Mr Kevin Healy with This Week That Was.
1: A week, Jan, listener, when, well, weeks, when, for instance, we were shocked that the riffraff would upset the great event that is the tennis by injecting politics into the delightful social charm. Wearing t-shirts, of all things, asking the whereabouts of Chinese player Peng Shui, herself committing political criminality by accusing a senior autocrat of sexual assault, which she voluntarily retracted before somewhat involuntarily disappearing again. One assumes that if the criminals, male and female, ordered to take the t-shirts off, had nothing underneath, they'd then get arrested for indecent exposure by the ogling security and sorry, police just doing their jobs. And seeing photos of the caring business class elite, the elite of the true blue Aussie, filthiest witch of the filthy rich, enjoying the fine hospitality on the final weekend, noticed a spy in the ranks. Socialist party supremo and would-be big supremo, Anthony all being oozy, sitting with the filthiest rich elite both nights, surrounded by mortal enemies of the class to which he devotes his life. Women's finals seated next to former caring business class party big economic guru, Peter Costa the workers LO bosses. Imagine the ideological clash there. Next night, right behind tennis president Jane, heard the prophet's like her, whose day job is crushing the workers at Not Such A Virgin Airlines. So we can be sure Anthony would have spent both nights attempting to point out to these people the error of their ways. That banning political t-shirts would have resurrected the ghosts of comrades past. The Arab Bank speakers who are rated for communism on this site for years. The thousands who marched to the Arab Bank on May Day. Massive marches back then when unions were so huge. Magnificent floats and banners. The anti-Vietnam War movement so huge. Ethnic communities setting up stalls offering exciting cheap food. Anthony probably even criticised them for the very expensive everything the masses now have to pay, including forking out huge amounts to sit around the grounds to watch the matches on huge tellies when they could be watching them on telly at home without having to fork out the huge amounts. That one always gets me. And we can be sure the tennis elite who cater for the city's elite thank former Socialist Party State Supremo John Kane the workers every day for giving them this important slice of working class history they sensibly have eradicated. And thank subsequent governments for the billions of corporate welfare they have poured into the venue so the elite can enjoy themselves. After a hard year attempting to keep lazy, avaricious workers under control, They deserve nothing less. So we hope Anthony may have led some of them to see the error of their ways, because we can be sure he would have tried. During the tennis, which the tele-channel exploits to promote, it's exciting not-to-be-missed upcoming programs ad infinitum. Got to say I see them with the volume down, because I also can't stand the inane comments of the so-called experts who specialize in stating the obvious. They promoted ad infinitum married at first sight. And I thought, I reckon it would only take two nights of watching Married at First Sight to end up as brain-dead as the contestants. Thankfully, there could be crowds of the tennis this year due to the new sensible approach to COVID in its sundry forms. Let it rip! And boy, has that worked! Has it ripped! As New South Wales' Supremo Dominic Perishtay boasted, let it rip been a huge success. We predicted lots of people would catch COVID and lots of people would die, and we were spot on. He looked very pleased with himself. And what a clever choice of words by the caring business class and the government led by a marketing expert who knew the economy had no choice but for us to learn to live with it, to let it rip. R.I.P. We see it on so many death notices and gravestones. Rest in peace a death in which their loved ones know it was worth it for the good of the economy. Except, when it ripped, those who hadn't died selfishly thought it wise to practice voluntary lockdown. Lots of people came into contact with and had to isolate, workers caught what was ripping, and thus the caring business class, at whose behest it was agreed we had to let it rip, learned to live with it, and die with it, but they assumed they wouldn't be part of the dying bit, then demanded the government come to their rescue, because people weren't spending, were selfishly staying home, a shortage of workers, and so they found a new brilliant way to solve the problem. Just change the definition of close contact so that close contact didn't mean close contact. And so those who met the new definition of close contact didn't have to isolate and could go out and work, work, work and spend, spend, spend. And those who caught the pandemic didn't have to isolate either and their caring employer could order them to go to work as long as they observed certain safety protocols like don't die on the job because that display of total disregard for their caring employer would force productivity to be halted temporarily while they remove the body. And the government and the caring business class were aghast that the bloody evil union said maybe workers shouldn't have to go to work when they have COVID and or should be isolating and caring employers should foot the bill for tests and safety measures. And caring business class relations minister Macaulay Koch, the workers screamed, this showed how uncaring and hypocritical and anti-troubler was he were the evil unions. They complain about workers not being able to go to work, and now they don't want workers to go to work. Oh yes, we can understand her justifiable anger. And our old mate in us, Will Cost, the workers of the Trublu Aussie Industry Profits Group, said he recognised safety had to be considered. But these were exceptional circumstances and caring employers simply couldn't afford to provide tests and safety and workers should meet those costs themselves so they could enjoy the privilege of working for their caring employer. As new figures showed, the caring employers had made record profits during the pandemic and our billionaires had doubled their billions which explained why they couldn't possibly afford safety measures and the government and caring employers said the evil unions ignored the obvious fact that government and caring employers would never collaborate to change the definitions so workers must go to work if they thought for one second this would put workers at risk. And anyway, those who already had COVID and were forced to go to work were not at risk because they already had it. And then the aforementioned marketing guru, Big Supremo, scuttled them more, Lashson, a.k.a. Scummo, and hasn't he had a wonderful week? And Dominic and others decreed we must not delay the start of the school year so dear little children could go to school. Uh, so you're concerned about dear little children's education. We're concerned that if they can't go to school, their parents can't go to work. Think of the damage to the economy. And again, they predicted that lots of kids and teachers would catch COVID, but, well, they had to learn to live with it, to let it rip. And again, their perspicacity was spot on. They're so wise. And at the other end of the life cycle, as aged care saw massive deaths and lockdowns, the minister, Richard Cole, backed the bosses, assured all that meant it was going extremely well have got to say, Richard almost, not quite, but almost makes Barnacle and Constable Peter Duffer look intelligent. And on such matters, hard to believe, isn't it, that pharmacists and other retailers would be ripping off with rapid antigen tests. Well, they're not. They explain why they have to charge such ridiculously outrageous prices. But I was a touch bemused during a telly item about a shortage of rats tests, a sign in a pharmacy, Special! Three for sixty! Wow, how could they afford that? Anyway, special 3 for 60, but next to it, limit 2, which I thought made a bit of a mess of the special. In fact, we know no one would take advantage of a pandemic, so just a stroke of real luck that report by Oxfam that, as we mentioned, our filthiest rich of the filthy rich have doubled their filthy rich as COVID rages. The 47 filthiest riches of True Blue Aussie with more wealth than the poorest 8 million. Which makes us appreciate even more the billions of corporate welfare they extracted from the public purse and needed so desperately. Which goes to show that in tough times these great people are so prepared to pull their finger out and work that little bit harder, twice as little bit harder. And just a stroke of real bad luck for the world's poorest of the poor who got even poorer and who are dying in their thousands due to that poverty 21,000 worldwide each day from lack of health care gender-based violence hunger and climate breakdown but seeing we're all born equal we can't blame the filthiest rich of for the exploding inequality Oxfam revealed on those matters the Envy can be so hurtful award to the newspaper letter writer after that truly great troubler was he, Gina Nohart, received a most worthy Invasion Day honour for services to making herself filthy rich and richer, who wrote, Hope you're sitting down, listener. This will abrade your sensitivities. Wrote, Gina deserves a tax bill, not a gong. How cruel envy. And of course, events in Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country have given a whole new meaning to the term Conservative Party. Not that they seem to be too conservative, even if poor old Boris had no idea all that food, alcohol and riotous carrying on was a party. Just your everyday staff meeting and political discussion, leading people to paraphrase when Sally met Harry. I'll have whatever staff party they're having. Finally, good to know it's business as usual in one area as the economy attempts to recover through learning to live with through let it rip graham swat worker's son who resigned from the fair work Tribunal, was he no longer work choices just looks like a con mission because the law was just so biased toward evil unions wrote a very thoughtful article telling us the biggest threat to an economic recovery this year was not COVID, but You guessed it, the militancy of evil, evil unions. See, another year, business as usual. Good afternoon.
0: Mr Kevin Healy.
2: And if COVID has shown anything, no government in Australia has had a planned approach to safety in terms of workers under COVID. Everything's been done knee jerk so whilst you've got market capitalism operating from a market perspective, we're only ever going to get knee-jerk things which involve huge exploitation,
0: inequity and racism.
2: None of these things are being planned or addressed
3: in any long-term way. It's all stop-gap and knee-jerk, and it is because of the role of the market.
1: Subscribe to 3CR, Workers' Rights and Union Struggles go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 0394198377.
0: And a warm welcome to 2022 on Tuesday, home time to Professor Emeritus Stuart Reiss. Stuart, I've been absent, but I'm sure plenty of issues have been occupying your brain and plenty of words connecting with pen and paper. Just looking back over that period, we can't go past the unrelenting propaganda war against Russia with claims that an invasion is imminent. A bit of history wouldn't go astray on the issue of Ukraine, would it? Well, two
4: things. One, the West always has to have an enemy in order to identify what we supposedly stand for. We have to have an enemy. And there's a sense in... The second thing I'd say is that my experience in conflict zones all over the place is that people want, particularly leaders, but people in general, want to be taken seriously. And I think uh, Putin strutting, strutting around wants to be taken seriously. I think we don't give enough attention to what the Russian perspectives might be about about NATO. And, um, you know, the humiliation of Russia when the Soviet Union broke up is what they've been, what Putin and have been contending with ever, ever since. So I think that's a large part of it. Nothing more than that. I mean, take them seriously, avoid the notion that we have to have an enemy, and... I don't think I don't think even Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister, knows what's in Putin's mind.
0: Just the fact that there's still a NATO. I can think back to the Cold War, and there was the opposing sides. There was NATO, and there was the Warsaw Pact. Well, the Warsaw Pact is <coughs> gone, but NATO remains.
4: Correct, and I mean the Russians are saying, and I intend to agree with them, that. If you listen to the, to the war-like rhetoric among a lot of American politicians, you'd think they were thirsting for a war. Of course, you can argue about Russian expansionism, but um, if the agenda every day of the week was how do we live together, how do we coexist, we'd, we'd have a different, we'd approach this issue differently than than, than counting up the number of troops who are amassed on the border or how many arms we can supply the Ukrainians with. I think there has to be a different kind of resistance on all sides. I'm not quite sure how this has blossomed into a, you know, a potential for war. And I, I think I'd have to say, well, if the Russians insist they're not, they're not interested in war, and if you look at the calculations, it wouldn't be any good to them, And then we can't keep on referring back to Hitler and Chamberlain and say, you know, we we mustn't believe them.
0: Yeah. Well, another issue that's been going on for many years now is the imprisonment and torture of Julian Assange.
4: Yeah, I think that is one of the most appalling evils. It's an evil promoted by the Americans' obsession with revenge It's an evil continued by the United Kingdom masquerading as though it has any interest in justice. And it's an evil supported by a very cowardly Australian government. You know, in the short time that we all have left on the planet, why they have to scapegoat and punish one of the most significant citizens of the past 50 years, well, it only shows how much the concern with, with cruelty um, is, is a priority in governments. I've actually dropped the term cruelty because I think these people in America, in the UK and in Australia who practice or collude with the imprisonment of Assange are, are evil. I'm actually writing about this now as though this is evil. It's worse than being cruel.
0: What he's been subject to it's unprecedented isn't it?
4: Look there have been all sorts of scapegoats in history. So in that respect uh, that that it's not not unprecedented. It's unprecedented in terms of the alliance between three countries to uh, punish this one person and the alliance goes not only with the politicians but with a judiciary that doesn't seem to know much about justice and I'm particularly referring to the, to the kind of pantomime that passes for justice in the British system
0: And what about Australia with the, the Labour Party doesn't seem to be raising its voice very strongly
4: No, I mean there are, there are a slightly increasing number of politicians and you have to give credit to Barnaby Joyce in this respect who are and, and Andrew Wilkie and even George Christian and George Christensen who who said enough is enough, this is absurd, this has to end. I mean I think we need to, you know, encourage those uh, more principled politicians to say, for God's sake, of all the things we have to deal with in the world at the moment, why any any energy left in continuing to support the imprisonment of of Julian Assange? And they're supporting it by saying nothing. Or by by the terribly lame excuse of people like Maurice Payne, the Foreign Minister, and and the Prime Minister, that that justice must take its course. I've heard that for almost all my life, and it has nothing. That 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 easy, lazy phrase has nothing to do with justice.
0: Another scandal of huge proportions is the continuing imprisonment of asylum seekers. And we had this um, exhibition over the holidays of Novan Djokovic. What were you thinking when all that was going on?
4: Well, look, I wish Djokovic had come out with a statement saying that this is terrible. These people should be released. Again, we've gone in for uh, evil of of, of the very worst kind. Morrison and Dutton and Maurice Payne and co, and, or, or, and members of the, the Labour Party who collude with this, are actually evil people, in my judgment, and I've just, I've just uh, written about it and said it off this morning. You've got the, uh, the case of, of M- Ali Ali, who escaped oppression in Iran when he was 15, and he's been locked up ever since by trying to escape to human rights respecting Australia. He's now 24. So we've dehumanized this guy as part of our policy. And um, Guy Rundle wrote brilliantly in Quikey about this about a couple of weeks ago, saying, you know, what's going on in Melbourne? I mean, the, the, prime, the premier of Melbourne, he must know that that hotel is in his city, that, that tens of thousands of people drive past it Every day why why are we allowing this? why don't we just let them all be free you know before you and I finish this program?
0: you'd be disappointed that Djokovic didn't make a statement about this issue
4: yeah um, of course i'm disappointed i don 't think um, uh, i mean he might have he might have said something' I never I, it hasn't been reported if he did uh, look he doesn't have a record of coming out on those on those sorts of issues. Um, I think that the best example comes for a sportsman taking a stand comes from Craig Foster who's tried to continuously say this this is this is a blight on this period of history of Australia. It's just the cruelty which has become evil. It's mysticized in terms of the cancer from, from cruelty into evil. That's what's happening. We need, we need to use that language in order to, to start to arrest the consciousness of, of these powerful, proud politicians in Canberra.
0: And I think we need to use those same words against the Israeli government of their treatment of the, the Palestinian people. And we had the example a couple of weeks ago of the Sydney Festival and a very successful boycott.
4: Well, that... Um, I mean, the boycott, the boycott, the divestment sanctions movement is, in my view, unexceptional. It's a way to address an appalling conflict that's gone on for over half a century or more with the language of human rights, not with the, the bloody deeds of warfare. And yet, we're told that the boycott is somehow illegal and it ought to be made in the in, in, the, in the words of a Labour politician in the state of New South Wales, it ought to be made into a criminal offence. But the, the artists, the over 40 artists boycott of the Sydney Festival for accepting sponsor, financial sponsorship from the government of Israel is very, very significant. It's significant because it's gone around the world. It's significant because mostly mostly young Palestinian Australian women have made made this an issue. And they're also saying that we've had enough of the privileged, powerful, self-important lobbyists from Melbourne, two characters in particular, in the so-called Zionist lobby, who, who think that they can continue to tell lies about Israel being a democracy or making false claims that um, that all the citizens of Israel enjoy equal rights. I mean, I know President Trump said lying was okay, you can do what you can get away with, and um, Boris Johnson in in the United Kingdom is trying to emulate that. But why should we have to put up with these two particular lobbyists who live in Melbourne Um, in in telling lies about Israel and the treatment of the Palestinians. And thank goodness, the significant boycott of the Sydney Festival has has, uh, brought this issue to public attention.
0: Do you believe that the results of this boycott actually mean that the Sydney Festival should have listened to the people and they've made a, a, a sort of a fatal mistake by not doing that?
4: Sure, look, they, they should, they behave, when they signed the agreement back in May of last year, it coincided with the slaughter of, another slaughter of Palestinians by the Israelis. It sounded as though the chief executive of the Sydney Festival didn't really, wasn't really aware of how the Palestinians were treated. A monumental ignorance. Having been, now been made aware, by a very reasonable delegation of the artists to see the uh, members of the board of the, of the festival, they should just immediately have given the money back. It was 20,000 bucks, but nevertheless Israel is listed as a star sponsor. The courage to say, I'm sorry, I'm wrong, or give the money back is, uh, is required.
0: Well, let's talk finally, Stuart, about a very important man a man I'm sure that you have met who who recently died and that's Archbishop Desmond Tutu.
4: I I spent uh, a lot of time with him in different parts of the world. First of all, he was um, enormously compassionate. He was enormously funny. He was absolutely committed to universal human rights and... um, he was extraordinarily courageous and he did it all with, as I say, with that beautiful touch of irony and humor without which we're all, we're all, uh, lost. I mean, he, there was nothing, um, politically correct about him. I think I recorded that when he was given a, an honorary doctorate at Sydney University and there was a, there was a musical and dance performance to, to have preceded the award, rather than go on with the formalities of the event, he insisted on hugging the beautiful young ballerina who, who danced for him. And um, and he put his arm over the shoulder of the young woman and put the, gave a thumbs-up sign to the audience. And I asked him how his friend Nelson Mandela would have, thought about that experience and he said to me he would have been so jealous <laughs> so yeah uh, look uh, what a what a beacon because he, in a way Mandela and, um, and Trutu provide precisely the courage and the vision the inspiration that we desperately need right now I mean both of them huge achievers but extraordinarily humble people i remember greeting mandela in the streets outside our center for peace studies and i said to him you know i had your assistant namely mandela uh, my uh, Tutu here a couple of years ago and he said to me, on the contrary he said i was his assistant <laughs> so you know that's the measure of those those beautiful human beings
0: And it's good to remember too, Stuart, that you were able to bring him here for the Sydney Peace Prize in 1999.
4: Yeah, I brought Tutu here um, against the objections of the Howard government who desperately wanted him not to come because at that time we were trying to get Howard to find the courage to say sorry for the uh, genocide committed against the Australian Indigenous people. But but he came anyway. I actually brought Mandela to Sydney a couple of years later, three years later, partly at the request of Faith Bandler, who you remember who who ran the, um, was the key person in the 1967 referendum. And Faith had said to me, There's one, I have one objective before I die. And I said, What's that? She said, I'd like to kiss Nelson Mandela. Can you arrange it, Stuart? (laughs) That was the challenge that uh, made me work for months and months and months in communication with Pretoria, where the South African government was, to bring Mandela to to Australia.
0: Well, thank you for today, Stuart, and hopefully we'll be speaking lots of times through 2022.
4: Yeah, yeah. No, and you suppress... COVID down there, Jan, so that I can come, so I can walk freely down down Ligon Street.
0: I'm still waiting for my lunch date.
4: Okay, okay. <laughs> you should not forget that. Okay, bye-bye.
0: And thanks to Meritus Professor Stuart Riss. And where you can find a lot of his uh, little pens to paper is on John Menager's excellent journal pills and irritations.
3: Would you like to get involved in the decision-making process at 3CR? Nominations are now open in 3CR's Community Radio Federation
0: elections. You can stand as a subscriber representative and have valuable input into the programming and future direction of this diverse and dynamic radio station. Nominations are due by Wednesday the 16th of February at 5pm.
3: For more information, contact 3CR Station Manager on nine four one nine eight three seven seven, or download the nomination form from the 3CR website 3cr.org.au forward slash people. You're
0: listening to Radical Radio 3CR. For my first program for 2022, I'm catching up with events on Bougainville with long-time activist Vicky Johns. In a moment, Vicky, we're going to talk about Bougainville landowners meeting with Rio Tinto representatives last month. But in Serbia, Rio Tinto has faced a rude shock.
2: Yes, Rio Tinto is actually getting a limelight of late. What happened in Serbia was that the Rio Tinto was hoping to start a lithium mine And there was massive opposition from the uh, public of Serbia. And through that protest and opposition, including the government in the end, they, Rio Tinto, have been kicked out. So there will be no lithium mine in Serbia.
0: Is this a first for mining companies that that they've actually listened to the people, that the government has stopped
2: it? I'm assuming so. But I'm not sure on that. But it's got to the point now, I think people are realising what mining companies are up to, seeing the light and opposing further environmental destruction and human rights abuses, I think.
0: Yeah. Well, what we're talking about happened a couple of decades ago, Mm -hmm. um, back in the last century. Mm -hmm. But this is Rio Tinto on Bougainville, And this... There's a, a new inquiry being set up. that's called the Panguna Mine Legacy Assessment Oversight Committee. Now, there's Australian connection there, isn't there? There is
2: indeed. So the committee um, has been formed and their first meeting um, of the Panguna Mine Legacy Impact Committee was held in Booker on Bougainville in January this year, January 2022. And the autonomous Bougainville Government hosted the committee representatives uh from clan members, landholders, community groups, the Papua New Guinea Government, Rio Tinto, Bougainville Copper Limited and the Human Rights Law Centre from Melbourne. So basically the committee met to discuss a way forward in assessing the environmental and human rights impacts associated with the former Panguna mine on Bougainville. According to a report that I met the Rio Tinto representative, Mr. John Dumbill, unfortunate name, but anyway, uh, Mr. John Dumbill said, Rio Tinto is sorry that we did not come forward earlier to understand the impacts from the mine. We are ready and willing to participate in this process with you. I hope that I can help to move this forward and I am personally committed to making sure this process is there and representative. Sorry they didn't act earlier. I mean, it takes a long time for someone to wake up, doesn't it? But anyway, so that's a positive note, that they, he's going, they're going to, they are acting on this. It was great to see the response also from the Honourable Theanilla Roker Matzbob, who's from the Autonomous Burgenville Government, and the spokesperson from the Panguna Complaints Group who recently won an International Human Rights Award for taking on the multinational mining company Rio Tinto in seeking justice for affected communities. And she thanked the Rio Tinto representative for the apology. She also noted that Rio Tinto had been constructive in working through the complaint that had been brought against them by communities through the Australian OECD, National contact, national contact point in the um, Department of Treasury, which is part of the Australian government. Um, she said also, uh, personally, it fills me with great hope to see all stakeholders come together to discuss a way forward to find solutions to the huge problems our people are living with. We are looking forward to working with the committee to ensure work on the ground can start as soon as possible.
0: She knows exactly what's happening there because she lives there.
2: Correct. She she lives just down from the Panguna mine. So she's been a wonderful person fighting for the rights of the people of Bougainville, you know, the landowners and clans around the Panguna site, right down the Jabba River, right down to the coast. So she's listened to the people, she went forward, thank you, to the, also to the Australian Human Rights Law Centre, who filed the complaint against Rio Tinto way back in November 2020.
0: Tell us about the law centre.
2: The representative who attended the meeting um, of the um, Panguna Mine Legacy Impact Committee was Karen Adams of the Human Rights Law Centre in Melbourne. They've done a fine job um, helping the people of Bougainville, and, um, yeah, I take my hat off to them. I just, yeah, it's, yeah, so a, yeah, yeah, yay. Thank you so much. So, yeah, they're still fighting and, um, there for the people of Bougainville and going to make sure there's justice and, you know, that the human rights violations and the environment, environmental damage caused by Rio Tinto is, uh, rectified.
0: There's another meeting this month. What's expected in that one? The next meeting, Yes, this month um, apparently
2: will be held in Panguna uh, where reports will be received with regard to like relevant background, uh, like history, and um, information about the environment and the population of Panguna. So I'm not sure of the date this month in February, uh, but yes, I'll, I'll be all eyes and ears. Then apparently um, the impact assessment contractor is to be appointed by the committee in April 2022.
0: It's taken a long time, hasn't it, Vicky?
2: Taken forever, Jan. I mean, I've been, I've been connected with the Bougainville struggle since 1993. It's a long time. And basically it's like we're, in, we're still waiting for justice. We're still waiting for... You know, an outcome for the people of Bougainville. We're still fighting. We haven't given up the fight. The struggle still continues. So, well, all we can do is hope that you know justice will 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 prevail soon. I did pick up a report um, also on the first of February. It, it relates to Rio Tinto and the culture of silence that they have ensued for many years all over the world and. The report was a, you know, bully about bullying, se- sexual harassment and racism that's right at Rio Tinto like this was um, like a workplace review and it was conducted by the um, former um, s- uh, sex discrimination commissioner Elizabeth Broderick and she said the findings of that report were deeply disturbing and that the company has promised it would implement all the 26 recommendations to improve its culture. So, and that, I think it was a worldwide, it wasn't just a story, I think it was worldwide, but it was, it was just horrendous. Like, you know, rape, sexual harassment, racism, like this company just hasn't changed. And what, you know, but, but at least it's coming to the fore now, it's coming to the front of people's minds what this company is really all about and the report on Tuesday, the 1st of February, was a follow-up because of um, what Rio Tinto did after it blew up the culturally significant 46,000-year-old rock shelters at the Ducan Gorge in the Pilbara in order to mine for more iron ore. So, you know, it's 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 slowly but surely, Jan, I think we're
0: getting there and Rio Tinto have a lot to answer to. Well, it is a number of decades since the mine closed. For people listening who might not know that history of that mine, we've got environmental, social and human rights problems. Can you just briefly talk about the aftermath of that mine? Right. So just, um, I guess, in short...
2: The people of Bougainville did not want the mine to go ahead in the first place. That is the Panguna mine in central Bougainville. They protested peacefully. They went to meetings with the mining company, Bougainville Copper Limited, who is a um, part of Rio Tinto. Their cries for, you know, concern about the mine even starting and, and or already beginning were falling on deaf ears, so the mine did start operate you know did operate, knocked down forests, the river everything was put, thrown, all the waste was thrown into the river, there were no environmental laws. so what happened after after a while the people of Bougainville were still fed up and tried again with the mining companies to say, "Look this, we've had enough, you know even the royalties you know are pathetic, and our people are sick where the pollution is so bad." And here, look at the fish. We got this out of the river and the fish had all these like ulcerations, sores on them. And the mining company said, oh, oh, we'll get that tested, the fish. And anyway, so, and we'll, you know, we'll get back to you later. Anyway, so they had a meeting later and the the company said the ulcers on the fish or the ulcerations, the sores on the fish have nothing to do with the mine. So after that, the people just saw red in Bougainville and decided to um, steal some of the um, explosives, dynamite, from the Panguna mine site and blew up the electric pylons which stopped the mine from operating. So that was back in November 1988. Sadly, what ensued from that was a war. And Australia was involved in that war. My taxes, your taxes, all Australia's taxes were involved in the war against the people on Bougainville. So a war ensued. The Bougainville Revolutionary Army were formed to fight uh, the Papua New Guinea Defence Forces. And that war went basically from 1988 right through until 1997. So nearly 10 years. In that 10 years, uh, there was a blockade on Bougainville. No human rights activists or media or journalists uh, were allowed into Bougainville. The blockade was uh, by air, by sea, and on the land. Uh, no one in, no one out. So it took brave people to go through the blockade, you know, to get through, like, missing bullets and everything else. Uh, to get stories from the people of Bougainville, to bring it out to the world, to bring it to Australia, to tell us what was happening, you know, on Bougainville. But sadly, again, that war saw about 20,000 people killed on Bougainville. Yeah, we still haven't had any justice with that either. So, hmm, uh, yeah. So the mine has been shut since 1988. The tailings that are poisonous, so the mine waste um, is still actually, whenever it rains, floods down the rivers, floods into the, uh, causing like, uh, like uh, how do I say it, like mine, all this mine waste is sitting in the river at the delta of the river right down to the sea and, yeah, at last, Rio Tinto said they will address it, but goodness knows when it will all be fixed.
0: All I hope, Vicky, is that when this meeting of the committee happens sometime in February, that these people are actually taken to see what that mine has done to the people and their environment. Absolutely. So the meeting this
2: month, February 22, is going to be held at Panguna, where the reports will be received with regard to relevant background information, which is all part of the um, environmental and human rights um, abuses, Uh, but they also want to know about the population of Panguna. So I'm not sure what they're actually driving at there. Why do they want to know the population of Panguna?
0: We shall wait and see. Meanwhile, the autonomous Bougainville government is moving along to ensure that they have investment opportunities that don't mean they have to have big mining ventures in their country.
2: Yes, um, it's quite exciting for Bougainville because I have been um, inviting foreign investors to, go- to Bougainville to help economically. So in January this year, the autonomous Bougainville government partnered with South Korea for um, an investment opportunity and an agreement has been signed with South Korea, um, which will establish like a joint venture the partnership will draw on uh, that international investment to help with technology and mobilise the domestic workforce and build infrastructure, which includes building roads, telecommunications, electricity, schools, hospitals, and also develop resources and industries. So that's about all I know about that um, agreement at this stage. The other... Um, uh, great piece of um, news for Bougainville in January was that there's now a Bougainville water bottling company and that was launched in central Bougainville and it will be t- producing bottled water for um, identified domestic and international markets and uh, the autonomous Bougainville government has made available 1.5 million kina for the project and that will start production in April of this year. So that's going to provide more revenue and more employment opportunities for the people of Bougainville also.
0: Great. Now, you've been able to keep in touch with your friends on Bougainville. How are they coping? Is is COVID in Bougainville?
2: Um, Sadly, yes, in Bougainville and also in the Solomon Islands and in Papua New Guinea. From my understanding, uh, everyone is, you know, there's been a massive um, promotion, you know, to get vaccinated in Bowenville, and people are finally doing that. So it's also taken not only the government but the churches, you know, to encourage people to get vaccinated. So people are finally doing that. So, yes, you know, I do hope they all remain safe and all, all remain well.
0: Okay, well, we'll keep in touch and see what happens with this next meeting. And we certainly will. That was Vicki Johns. As she said, she's been an activist supporting Villains since 1993.
1: Housing Justice after lockdown examines renters' rights in Australia throughout the post-COVID and provides a critical discussion on the roadmap to a more secure and fairer housing reality for everyone. The forum will offer an open discussion on organising beyond the pandemic for community solidarity and housing justice. It's a free online event on Wednesday, February 9th from 5.30pm to 7.30pm brought to us by the Renters and Housing Union, the Support Network for International Students and Homes Not Prisons and also 3CR. To register, check the website for details, 3cr.org.au. Housing Justice, a free online event, Wednesday, February 9th, 5.30 to 7.30pm.
0: See you there. While many of us were experiencing springtime in either lockdown or waiting for the next one, Dr Tim Anderson fled from it all and spent those three months in the Middle East, mainly in Lebanon and Syria. So today we find out about life in these two countries, which until relatively recently were part of the same geographic entity of Greater Syria. And then later he travelled to Iran. Tim, a brief history lesson. How and why did Lebanon and Syria become two countries?
5: We go back a hundred years, yet something that's called still called the Levant. The Levant, which is today it's Palestine, um, you know, including occupied Palestine, Israel, Lebanon and Syria. They were all one area and the people there speak much the same language. They have a lot of the same habits and so on, but with the colonial era and with the British and the French taking over control of the air from the Ottomans a, a bit over 100 years ago, they did what empires do. They divided people up. So the French carved off Lebanon from, the Syria, from Syria and tried to create an artificial majority of Maronite Christians, a little bit like what the British did in the north of Ireland, you know, they tried to create a little loyal group of people of a different religion, to divide Ireland. So Lebanon was set up as a sectarian state, or they call it confessionalist, but really means everyone has to identify with a religion, whether they like it or not. And Syria was, uh, on the other hand, fought for its independence, so established the closest thing to a secular or pluralist state in the region, actually. And, of course, because of that has sort of incurred hostility for many, many, from the beginning, really, from the 40s, when... Uh, they got their independence from the French finally for being an independent state for not really coming under the auspices of the of the NATO powers these days. So they formed Syria formed traditional alliances with the Soviet Union and later on Russia. And then of course you know the story of Palestine that Palestine was divided up in the late forties and more than half was given to uh, a Jewish Zionist European group and then the other. 45% was whittled down to a tiny amount today where it looks like Israel is, wants to swallow up the entirety of Palestine. And so we have an apartheid state and that was all well under the British. So this is, this is the mess that the colonial powers, um, particularly Britain and France created in the Levant, which could be and hopefully in the future might be a more, uh, a unified federation of the, there are many people in the Levant now talking about a Levantine federation without this religious sectarian boundaries.
0: And how did you find Lebanon? We're giving, in our mainstream whatever, the impression that Lebanon's just about on its knees and failed state. Is that correct or not?
5: I mean, failed state is an aggressive term these days because international law, it means that It's a threat to other states and therefore a pretext for intervention. That's the problem with the concept of the failed state. But Lebanon is in deep trouble at the moment. And the problem is, I mean, economically, there's been a collapse. Uh, They had that terrible port explosion uh, a bit less than two years ago. But the the root problem in Lebanon is this confessional system. They really, as many Lebanese, uh, articulate Lebanese say, there is not a state there, unlike in if you... You go across to Syria where there's been 10 years of war and, you know, the roads are working, the garbage is collected, all of these sort of things are functioning. And in Lebanon, it stinks and there are no proper public services and, you know, there is privatization to the maximum and everything is sort of organized under these sectarian family groups like mafia groups that control everything. It's it's a business. So it's it's very difficult because there's no easy way out of the problem in lebanon without a new constitution and the the major groups the the oligarchies that control lebanon are not in favor of doing that so this is one of the reasons of course why you have you know lebanon is one of these countries that has more people in the exterior than in the country i think there's about five million people in the country and there's many more than that um, in other countries around the world but lebanon and syria are sharing some things now which is the economic siege a terrible pressure um, from both the Europeans and the U.S. to try and starve them into submission. And, of course, this is, applies to at least half a dozen countries in the region now, including most famously Iran, I suppose, because Iran is the biggest uh, and most powerful of the independent groups in the region there. But you've got Palestine, Lebanon, Syria, Yemen, Iraq, Iran, all under one form or another of siege and um, serious economic pressure. And so there's the, the, the economic war has, in a sense, um, become the dominant reality across that region now because, in many respects, the proxy war that the U.S. has been waging in Syria and Iraq, although it's still there, is largely defeated, mostly defeated. There are only safe havens for terrorism in Syria, for example, in the areas that are occupied by the two biggest NATO powers, Turkey and the U.S., and Israel in the south. And similarly, the U.S. occupation in Iraq is maintaining a safe haven for ongoing terrorism in Iraq. That's the, that's the dilemma, the security dilemma.
0: Just to stay with Lebanon for a few minutes, how do the people cope with that economic war, the, the people on the street?
5: Well, with great difficulty, there's, um, prices are very high. The currency in Lebanon is almost, not totally out of control, but very... You know, being inflated enormously, it's in worse trouble than the Syrian currency because the Syrians produce a lot and the Lebanese are traditionally traders on the coast. So the currency, for example, when I arrived there about five months ago, um, the currency was, I think, 17,000, 18,000 to a dollar and it had been 1500 two years before. And then when I left three or four months later on, it was twenty-seven, twenty-eight thousand. 28,000. Now it's 30-something thousand. So it's just inflating and inflating. The, the Syrian currency crashed too, but stabilized at 3,500. So the problem for that is, of course, that um, people in Lebanon are really scratching. There are a lot of people, um, I'm not exaggerating, there are children and adults going through garbage bins. And unfortunately, the sanitation in Beirut is very bad anyway because of the privatization So there are people really scratching for a living there, quite desperate. And on the other hand, you have people with some money. uh, And and this applies to Syria too, maybe not to as great great an extent, but you have a great deal of inequality now being driven by this war and economic crisis because everywhere it seems to be the case that some people manage to make money out of misery and out of war.
0: I'd imagine that the remittances are very important at this time, as they always
5: were. they have been in Lebanon, but Lebanon is now under almost as severe so-called sanctions, really sanctions not the right word, economic warfare siege measures as Syria. So it's extremely difficult. You, you can't easily send money to Lebanon. It's, all, it's, it's almost impossible to send it to Syria. Um, there are so many blocks now. One of my, for example, one of my Australian credit union cards informed me a month or two ago that there are now 20 countries that they will not do business with and Lebanon's one of them. So I couldn't even buy a box of chocolates at Beirut Airport leaving on this credit card because the whole country is under this type of economic blockade. You know, you'll find, some people will find to their surprise that it's similar or even worse than Cuba. Cuba for a long time was the country where credit cards didn't work and there were all these bans from the US. Well, the Europeans have joined in the gang up on On Lebanon Syria Iraq and Iran and so there's a there's a huge there's this economic war which is of course is forcing um, new alliances like notably the um, the new uh, economic alliances between Iran and Iraq and Syria and China and China's Belt and Road Initiative. so there's there's a great deal of restructuring going on there which is going to take some time of course
0: and how did the elites get round all these sanctions
5: well, because the elites keep their money out of the country and manage to get their, When there was a financial crisis in Lebanon, for example, rich people managed to get their money out of the country and, and have it in euros and dollars and so on and also have a lot of property, basically. Um, and to some extent, that's uh, the case in Syria. There's a lot of resentment now at the inequality in Syria. Some things that Syria has that Lebanon doesn't have because it's got, still got a fairly strong state is a, a strong state sector in production is that there are subsidies, for example, on fuel. Uh, There's subsidies in a rationing system on fuel. That means there's also a black market system, of course. But there's subsidies on bread and rice and sugar, for example. So those things don't exist in in Lebanon. Lebanon either didn't have them or got rid of the subsidies so that it can receive, um, you know, whatever blessing or curse this is, Uh, loans from the IMF and the World Bank. Of course, they don't lend money these days to any state that has subsidies on basic commodities because, you know, neoliberal ideology, basically. But Syria has a certain amount of subsidies and then also some free public services like public hospitals, which are, of course, are under great pressure. And uh, people are using more and more the private system if they can afford it because there are shortages. You know, people go to a public hospital they may get treated free, but their relatives will have to pay for the stitches or the gloves that the surgeons wear because of the shortages. So it's really quite extreme in many cases. And as I said before, incomes are extremely low, even for basic things like food. Transport has become almost unaffordable, extremely extremely expensive in Syria, for example.
0: Is Israel taking advantage of this situation in the south of Lebanon?
5: Well, uh, yes, but of course Israel was expelled from Lebanon twice, um, thanks to Hezbollah, uh, whom the resistance group, which the Australian government for some unexplained and unprovoked reasons decided to ban completely just some weeks back at, at the behest of the Israelis undoubtedly, but the Israelis are certainly the advance camp of the NATO operation that's going on in the Middle East at the moment. Washington gave it a name 16 years ago called Creating a New Middle East, you know, a paradise of freedom and democracy and so on. And that's why the eight or nine wars of the last 20 years have been going on because the U.S. managed to get its NATO partners to join with it and a number of regional players like the Saudis, the Emiratis and so on. And Israel is really the forward encampment, best understood, of of NATO in the region. It's meant to be the core that... With the Saudis controls that entire region, but of course, as we know, that grand plan has been failing, and the the entry of Russia and China into the region has has come in in a response to all of these wars.
0: Is there still a buffer between Israel and Lebanon?
5: Uh, you mean in terms of territory? Yeah. No, there's a there's a fence in the south of Lebanon that you can go down to and look over the edge and there's a big statue of General Soleimani there pointing out over occupied Palestine and then there's even a river from the Kiam Valley going, you know, there's a blue border, so to speak, of a river going into the north of occupied Palestine there. But if you're on the occupied Palestine side of that border, it's um, a different story because the, the system of apartheid there is... Extremely complex. It's not just, as is sometimes thought, a, a, a single wall that they've created there. There are walls and fences all crisscrossed all across occupied Palestine. So, not everyone in occupied Palestine can travel to the north there. There are Israeli farmers in the north of occupied Palestine there, but there is a, a, a big wall, a fence, and the Lebanese go up there from time to time and And look down. They gathered there, for example, when they they do gather there when there's some event or other. When those six prisoners escaped some months back, there was a big crowd there waiting for them, hoping they would come and get through the fence and and escape to freedom in Lebanon. But um, unfortunately, that didn't happen.
0: You've spoken about the economic situation for the ordinary people in Lebanon, but there's many, many thousands, hundreds of thousands of refugees in Lebanon, some of them been there since 1948-49. Are you aware of the situation of these people?
5: Yes, you're talking about Palestinians, but you're also talking about Syrians yes. since, um, since the war in Syria. So there are um, indeed hundreds of thousands of Syrians there and many, certainly many, uh, tens of thousands, I don't know exactly how many Palestinians there and the way in which Palestinians are treated in Syria and Palestine is quite different Um, uh, in Lebanon sorry in Lebanon they're really banned from a lot of formal employment and owning property and so on which is makes it very difficult it means that in Lebanon they've, Palestinians have moved into the informal sector you know small business and also you know different sorts of trading and so on But they're living in what are called camps, but are really suburbs, you know, in many cases um, in in parts of South Beirut, for example, which is also the home of a lot of the Lebanese from the south who have been the greatest victims of of the various Israeli invasions over the years. So Palestinians in Lebanon are in a very difficult situation. They have a type of passport, like a Lebanese passport for Palestinian refugees, which is not always easily recognized so they've got some problems in traveling and as i said they have enormous problems because there's a lot of work that they uh, they can't access and the owning of property they they can't access in syria it's different um there are also many tens of thousands of, of palestinians in syria and the syrians on the one hand don't give them full syrian citizenship because they don't want them that to be an excuse for them to be deprived of their palestinian identity but in Syria they do have full access to all services like here, for example, with residents if you have the residents have access to Medicare and schools and all those sorts of things. So they have a much better treatment in, in Syria than in Lebanon. But nevertheless, they're facing those those similar problems, you know, that there's a, there's a great barriers between them. They can't effectively travel to Palestine and even Palestinians in Palestine, unless they have dual nationality, have difficulty travelling out too, so there are huge barriers. You know, if you go to Jerusalem, for example, Al Quds, there's a the gate on the north is called um, Bab Damask, you know, the Damascus Gate. And indeed, if you went in a straight line from Jerusalem to Damascus, it wouldn't be that far. But of course, now you've got all of these occupied areas, occupied Syrian Jolan and. And, and and terrorist groups that the Israelis have fermented in, in, in Syria and so on. So it's a nightmare, really, that complex set of borders um, between occupied Palestine, Lebanon and, and Syria.
0: Talking about Syria particularly, how much of the country is free of um, outside forces?
5: Uh, it's occupied by three powers effectively. The Israelis since 1967 have occupied the Jolam, which is clearly Syrian under international law. There's, whatever the Israelis or the Trump regime said about annexation doesn't mean anything international law. There's a system of sovereign states set up when the United Nations was created. So the Golan is um, a large section of Syrian territory which was occupied by the, by the Israelis for a long time. Then you have the Turkish Al Qaeda occupation of significant parts of northern Syria and the northern two thirds of Idlib. And then you have the US with its proxy, the, the SDF, the Kurdish led SDF, which is called Qasad in, in Arabic, occupying large parts of northeastern and eastern Syria. And they are also playing with the remnants of ISIS. Terrorists, they're relocating them and moving them around and releasing them from time to time to carry out attacks, particularly in the Syrian desert. But in that eastern part of Syria, which I did manage to visit um, last late last year, it's not as you would uh, as would be sometimes portrayed a zone which is totally occupied and controlled by the U.S. and its proxies. The Syrian army is there all across that region, so it's a, a strange sort of mosaic where you have. Syrian army and areas controlled by the Syrian army like the, the major public hospital in Kamishli and the airport in Kamishli and uh, other residential zones. And then you have the SDF with their checkpoints and then outside the cities in the eastern area you have the U.S. camps and they're transporting equipment in from Iraq and, and stealing oil and wheat from Syria, taking it out into Iraq and so on. So the, the occupations in Iraq and Syria are closely linked. But there's this strange sort of hybrid where the Syrian army has, and a lot of Syrian institutions like hospitals and airports have not been displaced from that area, it's still functioning, but it's compromised, of course, because the the the, the US, even though in relatively small numbers, there are still capable of responding, and and also there's the the smaller Al Tanf area in the south of um, Syria, which straddles the Syrian, Jordanian, and Iraqi borders and you notice there that the the US in particular is really has really located itself all along the Syrian, Iraqi, and Jordanian borders with one exception where the Syrians and the Iraqis control Al Bukamal the the crossing going into Iraq and that one is the subject of many attacks by US missile strikes and attacks uh, you, you you may have heard some weeks ago that the New York Times exposed this massacre that the U.S. Air Force carried out on civilians in a a village called uh, uh, Al-Baghus, which is near that crossing. This is a struggle that the U.S. has been trying to um, get rest control back to keep a complete division between Iraq and Syria and, of course, Iran, Iraq and Syria. And the recent relocation of uh, 750 ISIS terrorists from Hasakah down south to al Bukamal is part of that attempt. There's an attempt to try and dislodge the, the Syrian-Iraqi control of that one border crossing.
0: What's the truth of the prison outbreak?
5: Well, what we know is that uh, a group of ISIS terrorists attacked that prison and managed to breach it, and then there was substantial fighting in which a number of the SDF and, and ISIS people were killed on either side. But what happened in the wake of that was that the U.S. claimed that they were helping the SDF against ISIS, but what's emerged from Russian sources and Syrian sources is that a group of 750 of those ISIS terrorists, mainly foreigners, mainly a lot of Europeans and uh, Chechens, mainly foreigners, in other words, not Syrians, were relocated south down to that border crossing at Al-Bukamal that I mentioned before, the one border crossing that the Syrian army and the Iraqis together still maintain. So the the US is trying to is using ISIS terrorists to try and uh, dislodge the Syrian army from parts of strategic parts that they're in at the moment.
0: And there is the story that the US is continuing to train, blacklisted terrorists in Syria.
5: All of the groups, all of all the of the... Uh, the proxy militia that have been. Um, attacking the Syrian army and occupying parts of Syrian territory have been supported by the U.S. and its NATO and and regional allies. And, And, of course, it's not just me saying this. The current U.S. president, when he was vice president, eight years ago in 2014, and the head of the army then, General Martin Dempsey, admitted that their allies were funding all of those extremist groups precisely to weaken the regime in Damascus. Um, They admitted that. There's many other admissions I could could talk you through. But just suffice it to say, in recent times, we've got these cases of overt collaboration between the U.S. military and ISIS to try and serve their ends, to try and weaken the the Syrian presence in the east and to dislodge them from that border crossing at Al-Bukamal.
0: From what you've been saying then, how much of the Syrian territory, maybe apart from the Golan, does Syria control?
5: Well, most of it, most of it, all the major cities, really, um, including uh, Daraa and, as I said, they're located within Hasaka and Kamishli cities, despite the, uh, despite the uh, the SDF occupation of those cities. For example, I visited a number of Syrian schools in Komishli and Hassakeh you know, back in October, and it, what was surprising was that the because there'd been a collapse of the school system under the SDF, they'd tried to introduce a type of Kurdish curriculum, which I saw a couple of years earlier in Kobani, which is called Ain al-Arab in, in Syria. But that curriculum is not recognised anywhere. They don't have trained teachers. Uh, parents realised there wasn't much future for their children going to that system. So they wanted to go back to a Syrian school system, and in occupied the cities of Kamishli and Haseke, there are still what they call security zones where there are Syrian schools. And I went and visited them and I filmed them and they were totally crowded with with students, some 100 in a class. One school I went to had 4,000 students and those classes all had three teachers, but they were using the Syrian workbooks. I'm talking primary schools now. They're using the Syrian workbooks and children were coming in from all around the province to go to these overcrowded schools because the Syrian state still existed in those cities even though they're under occupation. And even some of the, the children of the, the SDF leaders were going there because, of course, every family wants a future for their children in terms of education. So that's the strange sort of hybrid that I was able to see by visiting uh, that part of Syria under occupation.
0: Were there many places you just could not get to or weren't allowed to go to?
5: Yeah, the, the the parts occupied by al-Qaeda in um, in Idlib. I did go to Idlib. I went to three of the cities that had been liberated there to look at the front line. Uh, I made some videos. I posted them online on the, the Hands of Syria YouTube site. So I managed to see parts of Idlib, but only some of the cities there are being repopulated now because the cities on the front line are still facing attacks from the al-Qaeda groups there, which is mainly HTS, which is Jabhat al-Nusra, al-Qaeda in Syria, rebadged, and also a Uyghur group called the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, which is with them in Idlib. So I was able to go and look down on the mountains from the from the western side, from Latakia's side, and go in from the Idlib side with the permission of the army and see the occupied areas there. That's all rather a stalemate because of the the international interference basically you you may recall that the army was liberating Idlib it did in fact liberate the southeastern third of Idlib but that was all stopped because of the threat of NATO intervention the French the British the US all threatened to attack um, launch missile strikes on Syria because of the humanitarian consequences of the Syrian army liberating its own territory from al-Qaeda groups and then Russia cut a deal with Turkey and everything got stalled off and um, there's that sort of international stalemate, but it's only in those occupied areas, uh, this, providing safe havens to terrorism, that there is still this terrorism which is coming out of those areas from time to time. Uh, Syria and its allies, notably Iran and Russia, have effectively defeated terrorism through the region. And indeed, there's quite a uh, the beginnings of a of, of a a moderate sort of boom in tourism in Syria because. Damascus, Aleppo, Homs, coastal cities and so on, they're all quite safe these days and there are quite a number of tourists returning to Syria.
0: You also went to Iran, how long did you spend there and where did you go?
5: I just went to Iran for one week this time it was my third visit and I was part of a group that went in the commemorations for the anniversary of the death of General Soleimani who as you know Trump murdered two years ago um, and he was a great hero, was, is the great hero of the regional resistance there in the region. We, we went out, apart from Tehran, a number of um, uh, activities in Tehran, we went to the city where he was born, Kerman, and to his grave and to Azad University, where there's a great deal of study going on in his name. There, there are institutes of of study in the name of um, Hassan Soleimani, and the university there, by the way, the branch of the university, Azad University, it's a huge university. I've never, I thought Damascus University was big with 250,000 students. Azad University has over a million students and branches um, all across Iran and in some other countries. So we just had a week of activities in Iran this time.
0: What was your involvement with the educational system in those countries that you visited?
5: Well, I, I've had some longer involvement with some universities, um, doing some seminars in some of the universities, in the Iranian universities. And uh, on this occasion, I was with a group which visited a number of universities too, and we gave some talks in those universities. We were a group of, uh, it's a group called the Pajamo or the Global Gathering in Support of the Choice of Resistance, organized out of Lebanon with representatives from North Africa, the Middle East, and some other parts of the world, basically. And so we were mainly visiting universities, and in the course of that, I've been offering free, uh, an online course, uh, an update of when I, I used to teach at Sydney University here, and it's been taken up by Tehran University now, and it's been offered in in Syria too. So, in other words, offered for Arabic speakers and Farsi speakers, but the materials are... To start with in English so I've got some ongoing relationship with with some of the universities some that go back a few years now.
0: Just final words Tim. is there anything we, you'd like to add before we finish?
5: No nothing to add Jan I'm just going to Venezuela tomorrow because there's a, a meeting of the Network in Defense of Humanity which is rather similar to this Middle East group I'm involved in so I'm, at the moment my work is on those sort of links some of the links between the middle east and latin america and that's probably i'll have another trip to to latin america a little in the middle of the year too so that's what i'm working on at the moment
0: okay thanks tim and we'll talk to tim when he comes back from venezuela that was dr tim anderson Live at the Bowl is back. The open-air series returns from January to April with an exhilarating program of live performance. See some of the best homegrown and international acts on the Sydney Meyer Music Bowl stage. Share a picnic on the hill, take in a symphony at sunset, or dance the night away to your favourite musicians. Explore the full program at artscentermelbourne.com.au. A 3CR supporter. The Sydney Film Festival for 2022 is over, but it will be remembered as the festival which betrayed artists and arts organisations, fundamental partners in any arts festival, leaving many to publicly call for a boycott, inspired and guided by the global Palestinian BDS movement, founded and led by Palestine Civil Society. And last week, Amnesty International released a damning 280-page report highlighting the ongoing systematic oppression and domination of Palestinians by Israel and finding the crimes against humanity fit the international legal definition of apartheid. Through this acknowledgement, Amnesty joins a long list of other institutions and human rights organisations international, Palestinian and Israeli that have analysed and confirmed policies of successive Israeli governments which constitute apartheid. To talk about these two issues, I spoke with Peter Slasek. He is an Honorary Associate Professor in Philosophy at the University of New South Wales and Deputy Convener of BDS Australia. And of course BDS Australia is Boycott, Divestment and Sanction. Peter, can we go back to the beginning of the Sydney Film Festival? When were people first alerted to what was going on?
6: My understanding is that um, the um, festival people had sought uh, funding from the Israeli embassy um, and it happened to be at the time when Israel was pounding Gaza uh, in one of its regular assaults, military uh, assaults on Gaza. So it happened to be at that time and uh, that generated a certain... um, you know, uh, a sense of outrage among Palestinian supporters that this was the time when uh, they were actually ignoring these uh, regular atrocities by the Israeli government and sought funding from the government. And then it was a a bit obscure because it was um, just uh, apparently reflected in the brochure of the city festival and the the, uh, Israeli government had been, or the embassy had been cited as a star partner, whatever that means exactly. So it was sort of uh, below the radar for a while until it became publicly visible and then uh, increasingly uh, people started making uh, uh, some concerns about it and and several groups, including my own group, BDS Australia, we met with the the board of directors of the uh, festival to express our concerns and to indicate the reasons why it's inappropriate uh, uh, for the festival to be accepting funding from the Israeli government.
0: Can you expand on that?
6: On the reason for it being inappropriate? Yes. Well, look, you know, it's pretty clear now in, since that all blew up, since the festival and, and about 40% of the, the artists uh, pulled out uh, in, in solidarity with the Palestinians as an act of protest. Since then, just in the last few days, Amnesty International, the most prestigious human rights group in the world, has now issued uh, a report, uh, two, a nearly 280-page report, describing the state of Israel as an apartheid state. Now, this is not just a term of abuse. It's a detailed account of the The crimes, uh, according to international law, there's a precise definition of apartheid under international law. And and, uh, Israel is in violation of those uh, laws in a number of ways uh, in its discrimination and oppression um, uh, of the Palestinians, both in the West Bank and Gaza especially, which is a brutal collective punishment and and a crime in international law, but also within Israel proper, as it is um, in the 48 Israel, as it's called, where the uh, Palestinians are far from having equal rights, despite the constant protestation of the defenders of Israel that, that they have equal rights. Uh, there's an um, uh, Israeli NGO called Adalah, based in Haifa, and it lists 50 or 60 formal laws uh, which discriminate against the Palestinian citizens. It's true they're citizens, but they have far from, uh, from uh, equal rights in the state. And, um, and, so the, and now, of course, Amnesty International is the third prestigious group. Before that, uh, in the middle of last year, uh, Israel's own human rights organization, B'Tselem, and then Human Rights Watch, another international human rights organization, they also both came out with reports detailing the uh, grounds on which Israel deserves to be called an apartheid state. And it's not just a, a term of abuse. The Israeli government and, of course, the local uh, Israel lobby defenders to say, oh, this is anti-Semitism. It's pathetic that they resort to abuse where The facts, whatever you want to call them, are pretty clear. And so that's the the background, of course, the the, um, boycott of the festival. People who know what's going on uh, saw it as a morally justified uh, grounds for for, uh, acting in, uh, in accordance with...
0: Well, Peter, it seems as if the Sydney Festival Board must have had their collective heads in the sand for quite a while if they didn't understand what was happening to the Palestinian people.
6: Look, it's a very interesting question. It's hard to know, I mean, you know, to psychoanalyze them, or not without interviewing them, what they thought and what they knew and what they didn't know. The reality is a lot of people, to their shame, don't know. The media are not exactly advertising the daily horrors on the West Bank and Gaza. It's, you could not find out about it, I imagine. The woman director um, who sought, apparently, the, the funding may or may not have known. What's interesting about this is that uh, we met with uh, David Kirk, who's the chairman of the board, And he has a very interesting history, a very uh, um, admirable history. He was a a New Zealand all-black footballer who refused to go to play football in South Africa at the time of apartheid. He was one of two that uh, stood up against it and actually himself um, boycotted playing uh, football with South Africa. So he has this admirable history, and one must assume that he was sensitive to this. So who knows what goes on inside the, the board? But they clearly, I mean, on their own account, were somehow caught by surprise. They didn't expect this, and they've undertaken to re examine their policies of accepting funding like this. I mean, they should have simply returned the funding when it became clear that this was a matter of concern, which they didn't do.
0: But just the fact that they they solicited the money in the first place, it wasn't the other way around.
6: They did indeed, and again, I think, as, as they explained to us, this was um, a matter of course for them, apparently, if they're a foreign... Uh, acts or, or or performers they will perhaps as a way of raising funds approach them as a matter of course without thinking of the politics uh, this is the policy or the approach which they're now reconsidering But and, and I look up to be fair I imagine that hadn't occurred to them that this might be problematic they just did this as a, a way of raising funds um, it was a, ped, a, a piddling amount of money it was like $20,000 and um, it cost them a lot more than that by the time the thing all unfolded because um, they lost, I imagine, a lot of um, not only performers but a lot of revenue from, from people who were boycotting the festival. So it was a very costly exercise for them to dig their heels in and refuse to give back the funding. I don't know why once it became clear why they simply stuck to their guns on this. They should have simply recognised that this was an appropriate um, uh, demand to not um, accept funding from a, from a criminal state.
0: What do you know about the decision to
6: boycott? Well, I know a fair bit about it. I'm on Australia's um, uh, boycott committee, the BDS Australia. It's a call that was made by the Palestinian Civil Society in about 2005 or something like that, or perhaps later. Um, It's a call to resort to peaceful protest, non-violent protest, as a response to the impunity with which the Israeli government has managed to, to continue its its extraordinary brutality and crimes against the Palestinians, violations of international law, violations of human rights. And, of course, the Palestinians were criticized when they resorted to uh, armed resistance or violence, as they did. And this is a, a, an attempt to resort now to traditional, well-worn uh, methods of, of um, peaceful protest by withholding uh, one's uh, funding uh, and, and purchasing and and uh, Boycotting is, after all, a um, well-known form of of political protest and um, we exercise it in all sorts of cases. Of course, the historical precedent was the South African boycott. It's important to say, though, that this has nothing directly to do with South Africa or any parallels. The apartheid accusation is based on international, but the boycott as a a method, after all, we boycott other countries when we think it's appropriate to to, to find a way to to penalise them to, to raise consciousness about the, their violations of international law. So in this case, it's been a growing movement uh, in solidarity with, with, with Palestine. And, um, and uh, it's now, of course, causing hysteria among the supporters of Israel and the Israeli government. And the only thing they can do is just to scream anti-Semitism as if that's, that's an adequate response to, to what is, after all, a moral uh, choice that people make. You can't really uh, object to people making these decisions about how to spend their money or how
0: to invest. Did the BDS movement, people here in Australia, contact the performers, or how did the boycott come into being? Well,
6: it it, uh, began with a a number of young uh, Palestinians and others were were taking actions to to encourage the performers to uh, withdraw from the festival. So there were a number of independent people that were, were... Acting in this way, they weren't all in concert, but uh, several of these groups had met, as did the BDS Australia, with the board. To their credit, the board gave us time to meet and to discuss the issue. Um, I was in one of those meetings. We spent an hour with members of the board. Um, so yes, several groups, in more or less acting independently, were promoting it, and a bunch of young people, were very successful. Young Palestinians were at the forefront of this, and um, were very successful in in raising consciousness about it, and uh, and getting the um, to to, to the great credit of the performers it was very costly for many of them they had been in lockdown and hadn't been able to perform and they had to pay a price for standing up for what they I think rightly saw as a a moral uh, political um, uh, stance in solidarity with Palestinians and so uh, I mean I think they deserve uh, great uh, credit and admiration for taking this stand at, at their own expense.
0: Can you talk a bit more about the hysteria that followed this? (laughs)
6: Yes. Well, look, you know, the Israel lobby, as they're called, uh, several Jewish groups and and, uh, others, they uh, have a really, frankly, disgraceful record of defaming and smearing people who dare to criticize Israel. Uh, The usual tactic, which has been longstanding, is to accuse everybody of anti-Semitism. It's wearing a little bit thin. There are many Jews, including myself, who uh, are in solidarity with Palestinians. And the idea that the human rights organizations and the, the performers and everybody who, who wants to stand up for, for international law, the fact that they're motivated by, by racism and anti-Semitism is, is starting to look a little implausible. And it tells you something that that's all they have in response um, when the specific concerns are, are immense. If one knows what's going on in the West Bank and in Gaza, uh, there are a lot of concerns, the demolition of houses, the eviction, the, the ethnic cleansing that's been going on since '48 and, and continues. Um, you know, shooting dead of, of, of uh, extrajudicial uh, uh, murders, effectively, of, of children, um, the, the administrative detention. There are hundreds of kids in jail uh, and people without charge. Look, so so they have, and, and the answer to your question is that they never mention these things. So their only response is to accuse everybody of, of racism and anti-Semitism and, and, and all sorts of things without discussing the facts on the ground. And that's uh, starting to, to become clear for what it is. It's just an evasion, an attempt to divert attention from the really serious grounds of concern.
0: And a few politicians joined in hysteria too.
6: Oh, well, several, many. Uh, even the ones that are less hysterical are really, I think, frankly, uh, disgraceful. Our Prime Minister, uh, just now after the Amnesty International Report, uh, simply uh, you know, brushed it aside, Uh, Without taking it seriously, even uh, the Labor spokesman, um, Penny Wong, said she doesn't think the word apartheid is appropriate. I think this is a very inadequate and and inappropriate response to what are absolutely serious grounds for concern of violations of international law and human rights that are overwhelmingly documented. And as I said before, uh, the question of whether you use the label apartheid is, 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 is itself a matter of international law and a definition by the United Nations and then. The um, uh, Rome Statute. Uh, th- there have been very precise definitions, but in a way, the word is not not quite the right point or the s- essential point. It's the vast, uh, documented, uncontroversial crimes and atrocities and, and brutalities in the West Bank on a daily basis, and of course in Gaza. So, so yes, and several politicians uh, uh, simply uh, um, look aside, and and even Labour. Uh, opposition has been really uh, very um, uh, inadequate in this regard. The um, leader of the opposition has, has endorsed the, um, what's called the IHRA, the International Definition of, um, of Antisemitism, the International Holocaust Remembrance Association, I think they're called. They define antisemitism to include criticism of Israel. Well, to their shame, the Labour leadership have, have endorsed that and have criticised the BDS movement. So the uh, with a few notable exceptions, um, have been pretty bad on this. And uh, they will be shown up for what they are because it's no longer possible to deny the realities. This is all, um, you know, really unfortunate. And as with South Africa, um, uh, the politicians generally are, are not um, uh, behaving appropriately and, and it'll become clear that, uh, that they will stand to be criticised.
0: Well, the festival did go ahead. Were there demonstrations during its, while it was on?
6: There was uh, one uh, a big demonstration down at the Opera House at the time, I think when the festival was beginning, out on the forecourt there, a bit further away from the Opera House. It was a very good demonstration with quite a lot of people and speeches and uh, flags, and uh, uh, I think that was a meaningful and worthwhile public demonstration, but it was just done uh, at the um, the forecourt there of the the Opera House. And um, uh, it was a a symbolic statement, the way these demonstrations are. And uh, I think that was useful. I think it was covered in the media a little bit.
0: Well, do you believe the media did cover this in general?
6: Uh, I think there was some coverage. I'm trying to think now if I can remember um, whether it got a lot of coverage or not. But um, I think it did get some coverage. As always, um, I have to say, in terms of the media, getting published uh, is very difficult on the Palestinian side. I co-authored an article with a Palestinian, and it was rejected. And it turns out that several Palestinians who tried to publish statements supporting the boycott couldn't get published, whereas, there, for example, the Sydney Morning Herald I think published three or four or five criticising the boycott. So there was this record of really uh, uneven. Um, media attention as as always um, in my view so that's been on the record in fact uh, just yesterday the professor of international law Ben Saul at Sydney University he's published he says you know hundreds of op-eds over the years and he couldn't get one published just now and he published it himself on Twitter Pictures of of his two page article up on Twitter because he said he couldn't publish it anywhere, well that's the pattern I mean being critical of Israel has been difficult because governments have really not been been facing the, the realities and of course that's why the boycott has become increasingly important to raise consciousness and, and draw attention to what are the serious concerns.
0: Are you aware of many boycotts similar to this in other countries?
6: Yes look it's a wonderful question because there's a, a, the most inspiring example is uh, the case of what was referred to as the Dunn's Stores boycott in Ireland, in Dublin, in about 1986 or something like that, uh, a young woman uh, at the checkout in a a supermarket uh, refused to sell a grapefruit, I think it was, to a woman because uh, her union was boycotting South Africa's apartheid and her boss called her into the office and demanded that she sell the grapefruit or whatever it was and uh, she refused and was, was suspended and all of her co-workers went out on strike. And uh, they were out for three years, and in the end, the uh, government of Ireland ended up boycotting produce from South Africa. It became a huge public event. I mean, the, um, the mayor or whoever he was, or somebody in Dublin accused them all of being communists, the usual sneers. But when Nelson Mandela came to Ireland, he had lunch with these young people who stood up and, uh, to honour them. And when he died, they were invited to South Africa to his funeral. So that was a small act of, that led to a major um, uh, uh, kind of public uh, demonstration of solidarity with the blacks of South Africa. That was a lovely example, and I, I've cited that in an article I wrote to show how, in spite of all of the usual smears and criticisms, acts like this of courage, um, you know, people say courage is contagious, and I think that's a nice way to put it. The boycott has a moral and, and psychological impact by standing up for, for what is right, for truth and for justice. And that's the case of the, South, uh, the um, Palestinian case.
0: Well, Peter, just, just, you just wonder what it will take for it to sink in for the general public and probably the politicians of what is happening to the Palestinian people. You've got major human rights organisations around the world. You've got Israelis within Israel protesting against the human rights of the Palestinians. And yet you've got our prime minister who comes off the out of the out of the blue and says, "Yes, well, no one's perfect. We'll support Israel, yes. no, no matter what."
6: In fact, that's what he did say, and and the way he put it was that we're a staunch ally uh, of Israel, which is fair enough. But the whole point is, if you're a staunch ally and a good friend, you criticise uh, your good friends uh, when they they do something wrong, and it's consistent with being. In fact, it would be required of being a good friend to a country, to, to be critical of them um, and not to avoid or pretend that there's no cause for concern. So, yes, I think this is a serious question. And, of course, with the current government, uh, one wouldn't expect anything else. Although, uh, But it's getting harder to hide behind these kinds of uh, statements because th- I think this is a real turning point. The, the, this has now suddenly become, with, with, with the, um, the, the festival in particular, suddenly it has had a much higher profile and been much more visible. And, and you can see, as I mentioned, the, the lame you know, responses, uh, empty kind of smears of, of the, the defenders of Israel and their own government, including the opposition. It's starting to shift, and uh, especially in America, where it's very important, there's signs, as you mentioned, too, both within Israel or less so in Israel, but certainly among Jews in America, there's a very significant shift to recognising that this is no longer defensible, and, and Jews in particular have a responsibility to speak out about the crimes that have been committed in their name and so that's an important change that's happening both here in Australia but also especially in America
0: Thanks very much Peter
6: Thank you very much indeed, thanks for your, your, uh, giving me the opportunity to speak
0: I've been speaking with Peter Slasik Honorary Associate Professor in Philosophy at the University of New South Wales and Deputy Convener of BDS Australia. Boycott and sanctions. Join the National Sustainable Living Festival
1: this February for a program showcasing cutting edge solutions to the ecological and social challenges of our times. Be part of the Decade Zero and join the sustainability movement with a month of workshops, talks, demonstrations, artworks, exhibitions, films and live performances. Let's bounce back with sustainability in 2022. Head to slf.org.au for the full details. The National Sustainable Living Festival is a 3CR supporter.
0: Get lost
5: in science. in the 3CR every week to hear Beth, Chris and Stuart discuss news and issues from the universe that is science.
2: Get informed and learn a bit more about the world around you. Lost in Science can be heard every Thursday at 8.30 in the morning and is repeated the following Tuesday at 6am.
5: Word to the nerd. You can also download a podcast. Go to the website at www.3cr.org.au
4: and get lost in science.
0: In what has been termed the U.S. persecution of the Cold War in the Third World, the small countries of Central America were not spared the brutality of war and aggression, particularly in El Salvador, Nicaragua and Guatemala. It could be said that the small country of Honduras was spared the worst of the violence, the one country without a civil war. But in the 70s and 80s, Honduras became the staging ground the US-backed Contra War in the region. There is a long history of US intervention in Honduras. We remember the 2009 military coup, supported by Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State, and her administration, which worked to ensure the coup d'etat succeeded. But in 2021, the wife of the deposed president in 2009 was elected president. Xiomara Castro, is the first woman and socialist to be elected leader of the Central American nation, long plagued by American subversion of democracy. So today and next week we take a closer look at Honduras, bordered to the west by Guatemala, to the southwest by El Salvador, to the southeast by Nicaragua, to the south by the Pacific Ocean, and to the north by the Gulf of Honduras. And I'm joined by activist, broadcaster and PhD candidate, Sasha Gillies-Lukakis. Sasha, there could be many starting dates for an understanding of the recent history of Honduras, but you have chosen the 1950s. Why?
3: The 1950s in Honduras were really a turning point when we're talking about You know, the emergence of social movements, of labor rights movements, and of the left in Honduras more broadly as well. And there's a reason that it emerged so late in Honduras compared to other countries. Because, of course, you know, you had communist parties popping up in the 1920s, 1930s, in other Central American countries and in other Latin American countries. Uh, But it developed quite late in Honduras, the left and the communist movement and the workers' movement. You know, just very briefly, I'll go back to why that's the case. And it's, of course, because Honduras, uh, after independence, you know, got independence at the same time as other countries, 1820s, uh, 1821, specifically in Honduras' case. But, of course, Honduras was the original banana republic. That phrase gets thrown around a lot, used to describe a number of different countries, but Honduras was the first banana republic, and in a very literal sense, because a number of U.S. fruit companies from as early as the 1860s, we're very, very interested in Honduras because of the perfect climate it had for growing cash crops. In some cases, literally bananas, but you know, all sorts of different types of fruits were grown in Honduras. Two companies came to dominate, um, and in fact, they're still there and they still have a near monopoly uh, on fruit production in Honduras. Standard Fruit and the more well-known United Fruit Company, which is now called Chiquita brands international. It's had a nice glossy makeover. Um, but these two companies were responsible for immense suffering in Honduras. They essentially came to own most of the country as their own private property. Uh, of course, the Honduran elite was more than happy to parcel it off. And they've interfered in Honduran politics for centuries. Now their power was, you know, was a lot stronger, was a lot more concentrated back then, but right up through to the 1950s, they were meddling in Honduran politics. They even had the power to call in the US Army to defend their interests. In fact, and I've got the list of dates here, in 1903, 1907, 1911, 1912, 1919, 1924, and 1925, so seven different occasions, US troops were called in by the fruit companies to put down labor strikes and other sort of disputes with workers on the plantations. And you know, the fact that the US could send troops into Honduras so brazenly, speaks to how sort of corroded Honduras's sovereignty and independence was. I mean, it virtually wasn't independent. And what we have by the 1950s is we'd reached this sort of breaking point where these this discontent with the control of the fruit companies and with the mistreatment of workers on fruit company plantations reaches boiling point, and in 1954, we have a mass strike across Honduras, and it's the first nationwide strike to take place in the country. Um, so previous strikes have been you know, in isolated towns or just on certain plantations, but this 1954 strike paralyzed the country, paralyzed the economy, and most concerningly for the US, it paralyzed the fruit company's profits. People refused to go and pick the fruit, Boxes of fruit were destroyed, were burned by the workers. During this massive sort of uprising, the Honduran Communist Party comes into being as well that same year in 1954. So we see more clearly than most other countries, 1954 is a real turning point and we have all of these movements coming up and they're also protesting a long, long line of corrupt and unelected governments in Honduras that had essentially allowed the country to get to that point. Now, Honduras had and still has two main parties, the National Party and the Liberal Party, like a lot of Latin American countries. The Liberal Party tends to be more progressive at times, but a lot of Liberal Party politicians have been like their national counterparts, uh, and they've just let the US do whatever they want. But by nineteen fifty four, the National Party is in power at the time. It's taking a hard line approach to these strikers, to the emergence of the Communist Party. But we have some younger generals who are quite interested in actually improving the situation for everyday Hondurans, perhaps a bit more even more than that. They want to restore stability in the country. So what they do is they overthrow the right wing national party. Uh, and they install uh, a physician called Ramón Villera, uh, who's from the Liberal Party. Uh, but he was an outlier, really, in politics in Honduras up to this point. Um, but he gets selected to lead the country. And he presides over, really, the first progressive people-oriented government in Honduras' history. So he abolishes uh, capital punishment, the death penalty. He, for the first time, allows fruit workers' unions to actually be recognised as legal entities. So, you know, people had organised themselves on these plantations, but they weren't recognised. It was actually illegal to form a union on the uh, the fruit plantations. But the government actually says, that, you know, it's legal, you can actually unionise, you know, you can engage in bargaining and, and all of these sorts of things that are so vital for workers' rights. He introduces the eight-hour workday in Honduras as well, uh, and he puts significantly more responsibility on employers to protect the health and the wages of their employees. So all of these are very, very important games for the Honduran working class. But, of course, it's a lot, and the elite in Honduras has been used to getting its way for, uh, well, for over a century by this point. They've never had this sort of opposition to them uh, actually get into government. So what ends up happening is this government ends up running only for about four years. Um, The next election is coming up in 1963, and so they're preparing, they're campaigning. What happens is there's a coup. There's a coup against the Vieta government and the Liberal Party, and the National Party aligned generals reclaim power in 1963. In particular, um, General Oswaldo Pérez, he receives a lot of funding, he's in discussions with the US government. He orchestrates this really violent coup. Vienna flees the country, a lot of Liberal Party politicians are killed, the other ones are either bribed or intimidated into submission, essentially. And what the new military regime does is it essentially rescinds all of the policies uh, of the past few years. So all of those, that progressive outpouring from the 1950s is essentially reversed, and Honduras returns decisively to the US sphere of influence. Now, another really important law that Villeda had begun in the 1950s was an agrarian reform. Now, it was very moderate. It was limited compared to what other countries have done with agrarian reform, but it was still going to actually give peasants the right uh, to own very small plots of land. It wasn't heaps, but it was something. But even that gets eliminated by the military government. And, you know, it's correct you said that Honduras didn't have a civil war. And that's true. The problem with Honduras and the reason that there wasn't actually a sort of sustained guerrilla movement or uprising against the military coup was that the left had only had, you know, six or seven years to actually develop, you know, after 1954, before this coup happened and immediately afterwards. There's immense repression of unions, union activists are harassed. It becomes illegal to organise in your workplace. You know, people are arbitrarily detained, they go missing. To be fair, compared to other military regimes, there was a smaller number of people that were killed, at least confirmed number of people that were killed. It's estimated to be several hundred, two to three hundred. Um, But again, you know, these are conservative estimates. The, The real number is undoubtedly far, far higher. And the United Fruit Company gets back to its old, uh, its old ways of meddling and they bribe the military one million dollars, which is nothing anyway, even as far as bribes go for some of these corrupt governments. But the military regime cancels all fruit related import and export taxes. So any money Honduras used to earn from its fruit industry, which is the largest industry in Honduras, just, it just disappears overnight. All of that, that income that Honduras had just dries up. This military regime, as I said, was supported by the U.S. It becomes heavily dependent on the United States, but it's very, very unpopular at home, unsurprisingly. Union activism does continue. There is one small guerrilla group that does emerge. They call themselves the Central jornet or Superior Liberation Movement. They're a communist movement. Um, they're very, very small. They never gain enough of a popular following or they, they never get the organisational capacity to properly confront the military, and they sort of peter out of existence by the late 1970s. But the Honduran military has its work cut out for it. I mean, you know, it's ruling over a very, very poor country. It's still reeling from the chaos and all of the new reforms of the 1950s. Honduras makes a lot of enemies in its own backyard. Uh, In particular, El Salvador, which is a tiny country next door. Um, It's only a fifth of Honduras' size. But to give you an idea of how overpopulated Hondur- uh, El Salvador is, because this is important, so El Salvador is a fifth of Honduras' size that has close to 7 million people at the time. Now, Honduras, which is five times the size, has only 8 million people. Uh, so a lot of El Salvadorans used to go across to Honduras to find work because there just wasn't any in El Salvador. And what the Honduran military government does is they say they're going to deport all of the El Salvadorans. This isn't really any particular reason. This is more so just sort of nationalist, you know, chest beating. They're just saying, you know, we're going to get rid of the El Salvadoran immigrants because, you know, they're stealing Honduran jobs, which wasn't even true, but this was how the military tried to get support. But what they weren't expecting was El Salvador to be so aggressive uh, in return. And what we had in 1969 is the so-called football war because, uh, Honduras and El Salvador play each other three times in the FIFA World Cup uh, qualifying games uh, in El Salvador, and El Salvador beats Honduras three times. Honduras starts publishing all of these really quite racist publications, and you know uh, government officials make these really quite racist pronouncements against El Salvador and against the migrants. They sort of use the football game as an excuse. And in retaliation, El Salvador invades Honduras and actually ends up almost defeating them to the point where Honduras needs to ask for a ceasefire. Um, now, thankfully, not many people die. It's, the war only lasts for a 100 hours, so it's a very short yeah. war. But uh, the El Salvadorans already take, you know, uh, quite a big chunk of Honduras' territory. And the military regime's all this bluster about, you know, being nationalistic and defending Honduras quickly becomes very hollow, and people see through it. The military regime's popularity absolutely Plummets after this war. Um, I mean, it already was very, very uh, unpopular. But you know, to have a military government, you know, being defeated in mean, the one thing they're meant to be good at, which is military action, um, it does not look good for the Honduran military regime. To the point that in 1975, the original architect of the coup, that is he's actually couped himself by other generals. You know, they're worried that. You know, his personal image is tarnishing the image of the rest of the military because of this war and because of the coup. So they try to sort of smooth it over. But of course, you know, that doesn't work either. That just goes to show how dysfunctional this government and this country are becoming. Uh, But I mean, throughout this whole time, you know, the Honduran military is being supported by the United States. It is receiving immense amounts of money they estimate that around $115 million to $120 million each year just for military hardware. Um, and, of course, the Honduran military never published, you know, anything else related to, to funding for training or, you know, upgrading torture facilities and everything like that, which the CIA uh, and the US government did do for the Honduran military. But, you know, after that coup in 1975, that coup within a coup, if you want to call it that, things quickly sort of spiral out of control the military is really sort of unable to keep all of the the union activism and the social movements under control. The US is sort of now turning its gaze towards Nicaragua, where the Sandinista revolution is, is beginning. So they're not giving as much funding to the Honduran regime. And by 1980, as is the case in many Latin American countries, the military decides to hand over power. They decide to transition to a very sort of managed form of civilian rule. And in 1980, that's what happens. The Liberal Party is chosen by the military, interestingly, to take back power. Unfortunately, at this time, any sort of progressive strain of the Liberal Party has sort of been expunged. And we have Roberto Suasso take over. He was a career politician during the military dictatorship. He sort of just was, you know, part of the rubber stamp parliament, if you want to call it that and he begins to uh, involve Honduras very deeply and very, very tragically in the Nicaraguan Civil War. So what happens, of course, throughout the 1980s, um, or particularly after 1979, when the Sandinista Revolution triumphs in neighbouring Nicaragua, the US commits immense um, amounts of money uh, and weaponry, technical assistance, even troops um, and helicopters to the Contras, uh, which are the right-wing rebels in Nicaragua, the fascist rebels, and Honduras becomes a launching pad for this campaign. So Honduras uh, allows the US and the Contras to station their troops in Honduran territory on camps along the border. Uh, the US's supply drops are conducted from Honduras, so planes leave Honduras to drop supplies into Nicaragua for the war it becomes a very, very sort of sad case where you have these countries, Nicaragua and Honduras, in the past, earlier on, in the early days of independence, were actually one country. They were the Central American Federation. And now you have one being sort of used as a jumping pad for this terrible, terrible war against Nicaragua. At the same time, the government in Honduras uses this conflict in in Nicaragua uh, as an excuse for its domestic campaign against the left. By this point, the, the one Marxist movement in Honduras has sort of petered out. Uh, the Remainders are sort of driven into exile during this time. The Union movement begins getting persecuted again. There was only, you know, one or two years between 1980 and around 1982 when Honduras began committing a lot of their troops to and a lot of their supplies to Nicaragua. You know, this whole, like, uh, red-scare witch-hunt begins again in Honduras, and one of the most notorious groups uh, at this time was Battalion 316, or Battalion 316, it's called, sometimes, which was an elite torture squad trained uh, at the US School of the Americas uh, and trained in Pinochet's Chile. And they were a particularly, particularly brutal bunch. And they operated in Honduras and in Nicaragua. So, unfortunately, it's a very, very dark period in Honduras' history and a very, very sad one as well. But, of course, by this point... Officially, the military has given up power, but I mean, you know, it was almost a perfect segue for the military regime and for the generals, because during this period of conflict, the generals are de facto in charge of most decision-making regardless. Honduras is officially at war. There's a state of emergency. So we do have to recognise that this so-called transition to democracy was, um, was really nothing of the sort. I mean, if anything, it was a cosmetic change, as it often is.
0: You've been listening to part one of my interview with Sasha Gillis the Carcass, looking at the recent history of Honduras. More next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to dot crorgau